Well, good evening, everyone. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. Just a little bit of uh, uh, telling you about our plan of what's coming up in October, the end of the month. Uh, I'm going to be teaching a church history conference in Myrtle Beach. And so before I go over there and teach it to them, I'm going to teach it to you. So in September, just like we did last year, we're going to be looking at church history for the month. We're going to look at the Puritans. We're going to look at John Owen, John Bunyan, and then finally we're going to look at Jonathan Edwards. So we will spend the month of September uh, helping me prepare for, uh, for the conference uh, that I'll be teaching in, in Myrtle Beach. But tonight we are in 1 Kings chapter 13. One of the things that I have enjoyed about this Old Testament study is that it's very challenging. Uh, this isn't like uh, an epistle. An epistle is very challenging, of course, but it's challenging in a different way. It's challenging in, in understanding doctrine and the different things that we are being taught there in, in, in that form. But in the Old Testament, we encounter these narratives. Some narratives are rather enigmatic, and such is uh, one that we have tonight, very mysterious, uh, this passage that we have before us in 1 Kings chapter 13. Let's read it together. Beginning on verse 1. See how many questions you can come up with in your mind as we, as we read this text together. The Bible says, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand which he stretched out against him dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. And the altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. And so he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So far, so good. That's easy to understand. There's no problems with that, is there? And then we get to verse 11. Now there's an old prophet who lived in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they also told uh, to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. 
Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. And so he went back with him, and he ate bread in his house. And he drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your father's. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled his donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, He said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. And the lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother! And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. And after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places, again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places, and this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. What a story. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Your Word. We we learn in this chapter the importance of Your Word, the power of Your Word, the certainty of Your Word. And our desire as Your people is that we would be committed to Your Word, that we would believe Your Word, and that it would be settled in our hearts, that we would not sin against You. Lord, help us as we study this tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this chapter that we are considering, as I said, it it must be one of the strangest chapters in the Bible. How many questions do you have in your mind after we have read this chapter? How many things that are there that we want to know the answer to that just aren't answered for us? We have a curious mind, don't we? And we want to understand the motives of men. We want to understand the ways of God. And sometimes those things are hidden from us. You might ask such questions as, why does this old prophet deceive the man of God? Why would he lie to him? What motive did he have that he wanted this man to come back to his home so bad that he was willing to blaspheme the name of the Lord by lying in God's name 
in order to deceive and manipulate him. You might ask the question, why is the man of God, who had been so strong before in front of the king, why is he so easily deceived? Simply because this man claims to be a prophet. You might ask, why does God punish the man of God for being deceived, but does not punish the old prophet for deceiving the man of God from Judah? Now that's one I'd like to know the answer to. And maybe he does, and we just don't know. You might ask yourself, why would God speak a true prophetic message through a liar? That's a question I'd like to know the answer to also. Then you might ask, why in the world would this prophet, who really had a major part in the death of the man of God from Judah, mourn so much over him that he would call him his brother and want to be buried in the same tomb? That don't make no sense. And yet, we are told it happened. This is exactly what took place on this occasion when this man of God stood before Jeroboam and then made his way back to Judah and for some reason, even though Bethel is at the southernmost part of, of the northern kingdom, he decides to stop and rest. Why does he stop and rest? But he does. And he ends up dead before he makes it back home. Now, maybe you've got even more questions than that. And unfortunately, there is no satisfying our curious minds. We want to know a lot of things. We want to know the answer to a lot of mysteries that we read about in the Bible and that we know from this world, and unfortunately, we just don't have them. But putting aside the strangeness of this chapter, I wonder, as we read through this, did you discover the theme? The theme of the chapter is actually quite easily discovered. The theme of the chapter is the Word of the Lord. You want to know why it's so easily discovered? Because this chapter contains that phrase, the Word of the Lord, more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. Nine times this chapter mentions the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord is what is so important about this strange and curious chapter. We will see about God's Word in this chapter. We will see the power of God's Word. We will see the certainty of God's Word. We'll see the importance of obeying God's Word. We'll see the consequences when we do not obey God's Word. Not only in the case of Jeroboam, but even in the case of a righteous man, like the man of God. That's his title. We don't know his name. He's called the man of God. And at the end of the chapter, he is the killed of God. He's dead at God's hand. Consequences, not only for a wicked king, but for a man of God, for sin. Well, with just those things in our mind, let's look at verse 1. Let's see if we can figure this out together. How about it? Verse 1. Behold, a man of God. A man of God, a prophet is really what that means. Came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. And Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. What a, what a scene this is. There's, there's no division. I know your, our Bibles has a chapter division, but there's really no division here. Uh, we just have Jeroboam, who has set his calves in their place. He has instituted two places of worship in Dan at the north and Bethel in the south. And here he is standing at the altar, and he has prepared to continue the worship and really to serve as the high priest of, 
of this new religion that he has completely made up in his own mind. He has set them up. He has looked to Israel and he has said, Behold, your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, what a blasphemous and wicked statement that is. Here he is, though, prepared to make sacrifices to these completely made-up, invented gods. Now, you will remember from last week, I'm sure, that the reason why Jeroboam created this religion is because he wanted to get rid of the worship of Yahweh. That was really at the heart of the matter, wasn't it? Even though God had told him, all you have to do is walk in my ways, and I'm going to create for you a dynasty as sure as the dynasty of David. What a promise. But instead, Jeroboam thought he was wiser than God, and the way for me to preserve my house is not to follow after Yahweh, but to take matters into my own hands. And so he began to talk to himself. And he said to himself, Self, if the people go to Jerusalem to worship, because what's in Jerusalem? The temple. If the people return to Israel to worship Yahweh at His temple, their hearts will return to the house of David. And not only will they desert me, it'll get worse. They'll kill me too. I mean, this is a man that goes all the way to worst case scenario. You ever known someone like that? I mean, they're sick. They Are you pointing at me? They've got a stomach bug. It's going around and they've got stomach cancer. I mean, this just... This is Jeroboam. I mean, all the way to worst case scenario. Not only are they going to abandon me, but then they're going to kill me too. And so i got to fix this. And the only way to fix this is to get rid of the worship of Yahweh. Can you not just see the influence of Satan here? Can you just not see the whisper in Jeroboam's ear? He might have thought he was talking to himself, but there was another voice in there, wasn't there? What you really must do is get rid of God. Get rid of Yahweh. And then, Jeroboam, you're going to have what you want. And so here we are with Jeroboam, who is insecure, he is paranoid, all these things, and yet he's serving as high priest of his own religion, and he's beginning to offer sacrifices on this altar. And we are introduced to this character, this man of God, this prophet. By the way, where is he from? He's from Judah. You remember, Jeroboam was afraid of the people going back to Judah. Well, Judah's coming out to him. Here's a man of God from Judah, and he's going to confront Jeroboam. What does he say? Verse 2, The man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Can you see the scene in your head? I mean, here's the most powerful man in the northern kingdom. It's the king. And he's up here and he's about to offer sacrifices. He's wearing who knows what. Maybe he's invented his own priestly garments too. And he's about to offer sacrifices. And in walks this unnamed man of God. And he points his bony finger at Jeroboam's newly constructed altar. And he announces a judgment that's going to come down upon this altar from the true God. I mean, here it is this man of God. I want you to think of this man. He is behaving like John the Baptist, isn't he? I mean, John the Baptist, who preached open air, it is not lawful for Herod to have this woman as his wife. And he lost his head over that, didn't he? Here's a man who is behaving so boldly. Would that we would imitate the faith and the courage and the boldness and the obedience 
of this unnamed man of God from Judah who was unafraid to stand against the king in spite of the dangers that he faced. And he certainly faced them. You may remember just from our reading a minute ago, and we'll get there in a second, Jeroboam's immediate reaction is to have the man arrested. It was a real risk to go in there and say what he said, and yet he did it anyway. He didn't run from God's calling upon his life. Here is a faithful, obedient, godly, you might say, man from Judah who was going to do what God had called him to do. Now, his prophecy is absolutely astounding. Isn't it amazing? He begins to speak the word of the Lord. And he tells Jeroboam about a king yet future. By the way, whose son is this king? The son of David. What did Jeroboam fear? That Israel might return to the house of David. Well, there's going to be a son of David, Jeroboam. And here's something else amazing. By the way, his name, is going to be Josiah. He's not going to be born until over 300 years from this very moment. But his name will be Jer- uh, Josiah. Excuse me. And he will sacrifice your priests on this altar. He'll tear it down. And then he will burn human bones on this altar. Thus desecrating this altar. And forever ruining this altar. Folks, you want to talk about the certainty of God's word? It reminds us of God in Isaiah calling Cyrus by name. God knows the future perfectly. Because history is what? It's His story, isn't that right? Josiah will be His name. And in 2 Kings chapter 23, guess what's going to happen? A king in Judah, a son of David. What's his name? Josiah is going to tear down this altar. He's going to burn human bones on this altar. He's going to kill the priests. He's going to do exactly what this unnamed man of God said that he would do over 300 years before it actually happens. Isn't it amazing how we can read that and still worry about the future of this country, the future in our daily lives, the future in this world? Folks, the future is determined. It's going the way God has sovereignly ordained it. It's going to happen just as he planned. And it's going to all work out in the end for his glory. For his glory. Isn't that comforting? God's word never fails. In spite of Jeroboam's attempts to oppose what God's word has said. Verse 3. He gave a sign that same day. Behold, the altar shall be turned down. The ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Here is another sign that the man of God gave. This very same day, this altar was torn down right before the eyes of Jeroboam. He saw it. Ashes poured out. We don't know how it happened, whether or not there was a, was a, a natural, whatever, it caused, whatever caused it. God determined that this altar would be torn down right in front of Jeroboam on this very day so that he would see that the event in the future was indeed going to come to pass because God did it this very day before his eyes. Now we have to step back for a second and we're looking at what God is doing here. Do you see the mercy of God here? God is speaking to Jeroboam. Telling him about something that's going to happen in the future. Giving him a visible sign of what's going to happen. You know, Jeroboam could have repented right here. 
had he chosen to, had he wanted to. Now, I know that we are in a Reformed church, folks, and some of you might have a problem with that. Wait a minute, God is sovereign. Yes, friends, but again, I'm going to continue to remind you. Why are people in hell tonight? If you die tonight and you go to hell, whose fault is it? It's your fault. There will be no one in hell who can point the finger at the sovereign God who created and ordains all things and says, the only reason I'm here is because of you. People go to hell because of their sin and their refusal to repent. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you will not come to me that you might have life. Whose fault was it? Their fault. Their fault. Jeroboam is hearing the word of the Lord. He is absolutely responsible for what he does after he hears it. God is showing him mercy. And yet what does Jeroboam do? He calls upon his subjects to seize the man. Here's an amazing thing. In 1 Kings chapter 11, the Bible says that Jeroboam raised his hand against Solomon. Well, it was the will of God for Jeroboam to raise his hand against Solomon, wasn't it? God had promised that Jeroboam was indeed going to do that. He had told Jeroboam through his prophet Ahijah that he would raise his hand, that he would one day take the kingdom. Well, here, Jeroboam raises his hand against the And he tells his subjects to seize him. He's probably going to have this man killed. There's a problem. God didn't tell him he could raise his hand against his prophet. Jeroboam raises his hand and the thing is paralyzed. Jeroboam's hand becomes worthless. Jeroboam thought he had a mighty right hand, but whose hand is mightier? God's. Jeroboam then can't return his hand to his body. Here is Jeroboam unable to do anything about what this man of God has just said. And look how he responds. It's probably not surprising if you know anything about the heart of man, but how he he responds to this is, I mean, it says something about him, doesn't it? Verse 6. The king said to the man of God, I want you to pray for me. Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the hand was restored to him and it became as it was before. Now hold on a second. Last week we talked about the foolishness of Jeroboam's religion, didn't we? Had Jeroboam not said, Behold your gods who brought you out of Egypt, O Israel. Israel knew the power that it took to get them out of Egypt, didn't he? Didn't they? The plagues, the parting of the sea, all that God had done in redeeming Israel out of Egypt, Jeroboam had credited these statues with doing. You know, a God who has the power to redeem Israel out of Egypt by His mighty right hand, certainly has the power to heal this paralyzed hand of Jeroboam. And yet, when Jeroboam's hand is paralyzed, he doesn't look to his golden calves and cry out for help, does he? He doesn't turn to his appointed priests. 
and ask them to intercede for him that his arm might be healed. He doesn't do that, does he? What does he do? He does what every unbeliever and atheist does in the time of trouble. It's been said before, there are no atheists in the foxhole. I believe that's probably true. How many people that you know and that, that, or that you've heard of or seen or read about or whatever who were unbelievers and then some tragedy strikes and the first thing they do is what? It's pray. And they don't pray to Allah. Isn't that amazing? They pray to the God that every man knows exists. The true God, the triune God of Scripture. Jeroboam does the same thing. Suddenly, his newfound religion is out the window. It is exactly as we read it in Isaiah 46.6. I won't read it again. But this is where Isaiah speaks of the foolishness of creating a God and putting it on their shoulders and carrying it and setting it in its place and then they begin to worship it. Jeroboam knew that this religion was false and worthless. And so he cries out to the man of God. Maybe there's something in this pronoun here. Entreat the Lord your God, Jeroboam says. Jeroboam knew that the God of Israel was the true God. Yahweh was the true God. But in his heart, Yahweh was not his God. Yahweh was this man's God. Pray for me. Pray for me. And again, God in mercy heals him instantly. Folks, is God's healing of the arm of Jeroboam a sign of what God would have been willing to do for Jeroboam if he would have but repented? Is God's grace greater than all of our sin, even Jeroboam's? So here's Jeroboam who heard the warning of God's word, saw the visible sign of the altar being torn down, saw the power of his hand being paralyzed and then being healed. You would just think common sense, wouldn't you? You would just think common sense. Jeroboam would repent tear down the altar, and begin worshiping in Judah and Jerusalem again. But we read the end of the chapter, didn't we? And you know that's not what's going to happen. The sinful, deceitful heart of man. It really is remarkable to look at, isn't it? I mean, Jeroboam's no different than Pharaoh here who witnessed all the plagues, witnessed everything that God had done and continued to harden his heart in rebellion. You know, Maybe there's a little bit of that happening here. We're going to read in verse 34 that this is the plan to eliminate Jeroboam's house, to utterly bring it down to destruction. Well, Jeroboam doesn't repent. Instead, it seems like he tries to bribe this man. You know, that's some conjecture, but when you, when you know the way Jeroboam is, you know he's going to continue his religion. He begs and pleads the man of God to stay with him, and he offers him a reward if he will just become and, and eat at his table. And it's that request given by Jeroboam that sets the stage for the rest of the chapter, because he says, hey, come into my house, eat and drink, and I'll give you a reward. Well, verse 8, the man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, half your house is what? That's half the kingdom. Give me half your house. I will not go in with you and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. I don't think I put it up here by mistake. Verse 9. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord saying you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So here is the instruction 
that the man of God had been given is that he was to go and deliver this message to Jeroboam, and then he was to turn around and come straight home. He was not to stop and eat. He was not to stop and drink. He was to do nothing but deliver the message and return to Judah. And he's well on his way to doing that. Verse 10 tells us that that's what he did. He got up, he left, he started going back to Judah a different direction than he had come. And then we get to verse 11. And in verse 11, things take a strange turn. Here's a man, again, we don't know his name. We have nothing in Scripture about this man other than right here, but he is referred to as an old prophet. At some point in his life, apparently, this old prophet had delivered a message from the Lord. Don't know what it is. Don't have a clue. But his sons returned to his home. Where had his sons been? They had been at Bethel. They had witnessed everything, and it just so happens that they saw the direction that the old prophet, or the, or the man of God, excuse me, that the man of God had went on his way back to Judah. Now here's a question. What were this old prophet's sons doing at the shrine in Bethel? Were they participants in Jeroboam's bovinism, his worship of cattle? Were they caught up in this cult that Jeroboam had created? I mean, who knows? Seems possible, doesn't it? Well, they come back and they say to their father, the old prophet, you'll never believe what we saw today. A, a man of God came in, pronounced judgment on the altar. The thing was destroyed right before our very eyes. Jeroboam tried to have him arrested. His arm was paralyzed and then healed again. Unbelievable. And then the man just left. But we saw where he went. Ah. The old prophet says, I need to speak with this man. Why? Don't know. Why is it so important for this old prophet to have this exchange with this man of God? We'll never know. But he tells his sons to saddle up the donkey. He hops on, he rides after him, and he finds the man of God sitting under a tree. Again, that's another question I mentioned earlier. Why is he resting? Bethel is at the southern part of the northern kingdom. It's not far from the border of Judah. All he had to do was get right back across the line. But instead, he's sitting here under an oak. Why? Well, ultimately, the answer is so that this could happen. And this is what happens. Verse 15. The old prophet said to the man of God, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. You know, so far so good. Here is this man of God standing on the word of God, isn't it? God has said, I'm going to obey. This is exactly what he said to Jeroboam. And he left. But, Sin and temptation can be subtle. can be deceptive, can it? Satan, 2 Corinthians teaches, sometimes disguises himself as an angel of light. Sometimes he uses language that appeals to us. He uses the name of Jesus sometimes, doesn't he? 
He uses Christianese, we might say, to meander His way into the heart of, of man and somehow begin to influence us. And so next thing you know, we're going and chasing after this horrible doctrine or this horrible idea or even some practice of sin that we thought was right because of the language that was used. How many people have been caught up in, in things such as this? And we could mention so many ideas and so many different books that have been written and all this type of thing that have deceived people. How many false teachers have deceived people by claiming the name of Jesus? Enriching themselves on the backs of the poor and the hurting. Well, this old prophet, this is what he does. He lies. He says, I am also a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. I really want to know the answer to this question. It's really been bothering me this week. Why did he lie? Why not just ask the man of God right here the questions that he wanted to know? I really want to know that, don't you? That really bothers me. There needs to be some justice. There needs to be a happy ending somewhere to this story where this old prophet gets what's coming to him. That must be somewhere in first hesitations or something. Well, what does he say to the man? God spoke to me too, buddy. You're not the only prophet around here. Maybe that's part. Maybe there's some jealousy. You think? Now I'm speculating. I better stop. You're not the only prophet. I'm a prophet too. And an angel spoke to me. And an angel told me I'm supposed to take care of you. Now the man of God knew better than that, didn't he? God spoke to him directly. And said, you go here and you come home. He knew what God's word had said. And yet all it took was a little manipulation, a little deception. This man taking the name of the Lord in vain by using God's name to bear false witness against the Lord. And this man of God is going to go down. Maybe, maybe there's some application here for us, you think? How important it is for us to, to know the Word of God and to submit to it. We live in a day of relativism. Things change. People think things are changing. People think things are subjective. There are people that believe that our culture determines truth, not God's Word. People think that this is an outdated book with outdated ideas. Is that true? And these things, they appeal to us. You know why they appeal to us? Because at the end of the day, just like Jeroboam, we are selfish. And we want those things that appeal to us, that make us happy, that please our flesh. That's what Jeroboam wanted. He wanted the continuance of his kingdom. And he was willing to do whatever it took to do it, except obey God. Isn't that amazing? Same way with men, isn't it? Willing to do whatever to get what they want, except to obey the Lord who offers them riches in heaven forevermore. Well, this world will appeal to us. This world will tell us. You can hear the whisper of Satan. Did God really say? 
And how many times have we, I'm not talking about your neighbor, how many times have we compromised because we heard that voice and we believed it? We believed it. But I can't help but think of Galatians 1 when I read the lie that this prophet said. Galatians 1.8 says, But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If even an angel appears to you and contradicts what God's Word has said, that angel is to be accursed. Hello, Joseph Smith. You should have read Galatians 1.8. It doesn't matter who it is. Folks, it don't matter if it's me or if it's Randy. If we should preach a gospel contrary to that which you have received in the Scriptures, we are accursed. And you should ignore us, reject us, throw us out of here. It didn't matter that this man claimed to hear from an angel. This man of God had the Word of God. And he should have submitted to it. Can you hear 1 John 4? Test the spirits! These are things that we don't listen to, that we don't take seriously. But there is a spirit behind the false teaching of men, a spirit behind the lies that this culture tells us. Test them. How do you test them? The Word of God. That's how. The Word of God. Test them. You hold them accountable. And if the Scripture contradicts your desire, then you repudiate not the Scripture, but your desire. It is your will that needs to change. Your desire that you need to repent of. It's not the Word. The Word of God is perfect. And we stand on it. Well, what's going to happen? What a lesson there is for us. Here is a prophet that we compared to John the Baptist earlier. I mean, if this chapter ended with verse 10, you'd think, here's another Nathan who walks into David and says, Thou art the man. Here's a man to imitate. But then we read verse 19, and we see his disobedience. The man of God went back with the old prophet, and he ate bread in his house, and he drank water. That might not seem like a big deal to us, folks. But it was a willful rebellion against what God had said. Even deception is no excuse. Because this man knew better. He knew better. We can't blame our sin on the tempter. We can't be like Eve and say it was the serpent. We can't be like Adam and say, that woman you gave me. Even though we like to do that, don't we men? There's no excuse, is there? This is a man who had the word of God and he chose to violate it. He went back with this prophet. And there's consequences. Even for him. Even for an old John the Baptist or a new Nathan. Verse 20. 
They sat at the table. For some reason, God actually chose to speak through the mouth of a liar. The word of God came to the old prophet. And he cried to the man of God from Judah. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but you have come back. You have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said, you eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. You're going to die. And you're not going to have an honorable death. You will not be buried with your fathers. Learn this lesson, folks. This was not a wicked man like Jeroboam. We're going to find Jeroboam's fate as we go forward. This is not a wicked man like Jeroboam. This is a man of God. But the consequences for his sin are severe nonetheless. Here was a man who was not above a great fall. common saying that even the best of men, well, they're still simply men at their best. Here is one of the best of us who ends up being just like us. Maybe he was just hungry. Maybe he was sitting under that oak tree because he was tired and he was hungry. Takes a lot of energy out of a man to stand before a king and call down judgment. Maybe he is sitting there under that tree thinking, you know what I wouldn't give for a piece of bread right now. What I wouldn't give for a cup of cold water. And this old prophet deceives him and it didn't take much until he was falling into sin. You know what I think of when I think about a man being tempted with bread and water? Oh, I move a thousand years into the future or so. And there sitting out in the wilderness was another man. A man far more hungry than this one. A man who hadn't eaten in 40 days. A man who had been ravaged for 40 days by the tempter. You shouldn't just think that this temptation lasted only these three attempts that were recorded for us. He was ravaged in the wilderness. And finally, one of the temptations to our Lord Jesus as He sat there in the wilderness was what? You're hungry? Maybe there's a little subtle, your Father has not provided you with anything to eat? You can do it yourself if you are, and you are, is the meaning there. If you are the Son of God, and it's true, then you have the power to take these stones and turn them into bread. You know, that's... What's the big deal about that? Just bread? Nobody's out there. But the big deal about that was that would have been contrary to the will of God, the Father. Jesus came to do the will of His Father, which was in heaven, and trusting Him is what He would do. And how did Jesus answer Him? In Matthew 4.4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, if only this, this man of God would have quoted that passage himself, maybe this wouldn't have happened. 
But this man listened perhaps to his stomach that was growling. And he had a great fall. Aren't you glad that Jesus passed his test in the wilderness to provide for us the righteousness that we so greatly lack because of how often we have listened to the tempter and followed the passions of our flesh and did exactly what we knew God's word said, thou shalt not do. Well, the old prophet saddled this man's donkey after this, after he placed him under the judgment of God. And, and here's another question. There's no protest from the man of God here. Wait a minute. You're the one that told me to come back here. What do you mean? You lied. There's, there's nothing from the man of God that looks up to heaven and says, says this isn't fair. Maybe there's a, an acceptance here. By the man of God. He knew, didn't he? He knew that he had broken God's word. So the man saddled his donkey, starts heading back towards Judah, and just out of nowhere, just by chance, of course, just so happened there's a lion on the way. And the lion tears him. The man falls from his donkey, and there he he lays and he's dead. And amazingly, the lion never touches him again. You know, usually, if you're in the wilderness and there's a donkey and there's a lion, what's the donkey going to do? It's going to run away. Usually, if there's a lion and there's a donkey, what's the lion going to do? He's going to have his lunch, isn't he? He's already attacked the man of God. He's probably going to do what lions do. And yet this lion stands there almost as if he's guarding the body of the man of God that he had just killed. We are reminded of something. Again, we go forward, don't we? We're reminded of another prophet who's in a den of what? Of lions. We are reminded that God is sovereign even over the lions. This lion had his mouth closed. People are walking by. And they're just struck with the amazement of here's a dead body, here's a donkey, there's a lion. The lion's not doing what a lion usually does. You know why they were amazed by that? So that they would go back to Bethel, so that they would find this man of God, or this old prophet, excuse me, and they would tell him, you aren't going to believe what we saw out there on the road to Judah. And the old prophet knows exactly what had happened. The word of God that he spoke through me has come true. Sons, saddle my donkey. He gets on his donkey. He rides out. He finds him. And he mourns for him in this amazing way. In verse 30, he, he laid the body in his own grave. They mourned over him. And he said, alas, my brother. What a weird statement. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, I want you to bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones for the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. What do we make of that? 
To be honest with you folks, I got no idea. Now I read some people who have theorized that this is a living parable about the future of Israel and Judah. I mean, if that floats your boat, but I don't know that that's the case. That's, that seemed a little strange to me. I don't know, I can't answer the motives of this old prophet. Maybe he wants to be associated with this man of God. I, I don't know. But it's just mysterious why he would take this man of God after he's really responsible partly for the man dying in the first place. And not only does he bury him, he wants to be buried with him on the day of his death. I don't know what to say about that. Other than this is a sad end for a man who began this chapter on such a, a high note. It's not the first time we've seen this in Scripture, is it? We'll get to some application for that in just a moment. Well, we come to the end of the chapter, and here we find Jeroboam. Jeroboam heard the word of the Lord. Jeroboam saw the signs of the Lord. And yet Jeroboam will not repent. He didn't turn from his evil way. He just went and appointed more, more priests for the high places. Any who would. I mean, no qualifications. Anybody that wants to can sign up to be a priest. He ordained them. Who gave him the right to ordain priests, by the way? This thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam. There was a purpose in it. What is that purpose? To cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Jeroboam had his chance, and he missed it. He missed it. Well, with that, what do we learn from this? What lessons are there? We've hinted at them already. Let's go over them together. First of all, I mean, we can see here the importance of obedience, can't we? I mean, it's not hard to gather that application from this passage. I mean, we can learn that lesson from Jeroboam. We can learn this lesson from the man of God. Even for God's people, a partial obedience will not do. I really believe, and I, and I don't believe it, I know it, because I've been this way in the past. And I wonder if you have too. Or we just kind of get content with where we're at. We just get content with how we're living. We get content in our routine. And our, our walk with Christ is really... No walk at all. We're kind of sitting on the sidelines doing nothing. We're not really even thinking about obedience in our daily lives. We're not really thinking about how can I obey God at work? How can I obey God in my family, in my home? How can I make sure that as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord is not just a decorative plaque that I bought at Hobby Lobby. But is the real motive and goal in this house? How can I obey God in that way? We don't even ask those questions. We just think tomorrow I'm going to work, I'm coming home, leave me alone, I'm tired, and then I'm going to bed. I've got to do the same thing tomorrow. And on Sunday, I'd really rather not because I'd like to have another day to sleep in, but we've got to go to church because that's what I do. So I get up and I go to church. 
And I go out to eat and I go home. I sit down on the couch and I do nothing. Leave me alone. I'm tired. Got to go to work tomorrow. And that's just our week. Folks, I guarantee you there's a lot of men and women living that life right now that I just described. They don't give any thought to the Lordship of Christ in their daily lives. Not, not any thought to it. Partial obedience will not do, will it? Maybe I'm making this up in my head, but it sure seems like a lot of these Wednesday night sermons, boy, they just roll right into Sunday. It's really amazing. Because on Sunday morning, you know what we're going to see in the Apostle Paul? He's going to tell us to press on. To strain. To stretch ourselves out. Like a runner in a, in a sprint. Not looking behind, but looking forward. Doing everything possible. Exerting himself with maximum effort to reach the prize. What is that prize? It is perfection. I haven't obtained it. But just because I haven't obtained it and I know I'm not going to in this life doesn't mean I slack off. No, it gives me the incentive all the more to keep pressing, keep going. And then he'll say in verse 17 that we'll cover in two weeks, join in imitating me. Have this same mindset that you see in me and that you also see in others. Partial obedience will not do. The Christian life is a life lived in pursuit. Pursuit! It doesn't stop. There are no breaks in the Christian life. There are no sidelines. If you're on the sidelines, what you're really doing is going backwards. The Christian is running a race. Run with endurance. It's amazing how many times in the New Testament we see that metaphor. Find it in Hebrews. We find it in 1 Corinthians. It's in Philippians. Run this race. Push ahead. Paul, at the end of his life, I've fought the good fight. I've finished my course. We're running, racing. And we see what happens. If we don't, there are consequences. How many times have we learned that lesson in the Old Testament? Do we believe it? I mean, here is a man of God. That's how he is referred to in the chapter. Now he's dead at God's hand consequences both in the present life but also in the life to come folks you have to ask yourself the question you may be here and you don't know the Lord how many times have you heard the gospel how many times have you heard the preaching of Christ you can sit here and scoff at Jeroboam for seeing all these signs and continuing in his rebellion and yet you who are here and do not know Jesus Christ you're doing the same thing every day you have no excuse and one day you're going to be cut off too. Cut off forever from the presence of God. You're going to experience His wrath for all eternity. When God says, repent and believe and receive eternal life. It's amazing. We need to learn these lessons, folks. You know, second, I think we... Learn from this man of God the ability of every man to fall. I wonder if we ever get too prideful. Sometimes we think we have arrived. We need to learn that lesson too that we're going to learn on Sunday. I haven't obtained it. Here's a man of God. You know, if, if that man, if we would have been sitting here watching him, perhaps we'd have looked at him and said, would that I were like him. 
Oh, I'd like to be like him. How many pastors maybe have you said that about in your life? I wish that I were like him. Only to then watch him fall. It's possible for every one of us to have a great fall. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 would speak to this. He, he says, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Why? So that after I have preached to others, I myself do not be disqualified. The Apostle Paul knew it was possible for him to be disqualified. Are we so arrogant? The very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands, what? Take heed. Lest he fall. Take heed lest he fall. We must guard our, our hearts, ladies and gentlemen. Temptation is subtle sometimes. It's disguised as an angel of light. We must stand against it. We must stand. And, and the tool that we have at our disposal is the tool that the man of God used at first, but then went away from. It's the tool that Jesus used in the wilderness. It is the tool of God's Word. Well, aren't you glad for God's grace then, knowing that this is true? That even though there may be consequences for our sin, that even if we have a good or a bad fall, a terrible fall, I try to remind us all the time, and the reason I try to remind you all the time is because I have to remind myself all the time, is that God loves me the same on my good days as my bad days. God loves me after I've had the worst fall of my life just as much as He did on the best day of my life. When I preach the best sermon I've ever preached. When, when more people who have ever been affected positively under the preaching of the Word, under my ministry are affected, God loves me no differently on my worst day than He did on that day. All my success was His success anyway. Aren't you glad for God's grace? God will bring consequences. God will discipline those whom He loves. Well, finally, I think we need to look to the certainty of God's Word, don't you say? I'm just struck by that. Just like in Isaiah, what is it, Isaiah 40, where God calls Cyrus by name. Long before, I think it's 200 years if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, 200 years before Cyrus is born, God calls him by name. I believe it's Isaiah 40. Here the same way, 300 years before Josiah, God calls Josiah by name, and everything that God said would happen, happened. Just as he said, I mean, just exactly. God's word is true. And when it speaks of future events, we can take it to the bank just as if he was speaking of a past event. We can believe the future that God has told us just as much as we can believe the past that God has told us. We can believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ just as we believe in the certainty of the first coming of Jesus Christ, even though one has happened and the other hasn't. We need to remember that, ladies and gentlemen. God has promised us that there is another king coming. There is a king who is going to come. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to destroy all the false religions of men. All of the idols that we have set up are going to be burned up and melted in fervent heat when he comes again. And on that day, all men, even men like Jeroboam, will bow before him as Philippians 2, 9 through 
11 says. They will bow every knee in heaven, in the earth, even under the earth. Jeroboam himself will bow and he will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The final king, the king of kings will reign and all men will acknowledge him that he is indeed king. He is indeed Lord. God's word has promised it. Are you living in anticipation of it? Let's pray. Lord, what a chapter. What a confusing set of events. And yet, what a, an applicational chapter as we have seen. What a challenging chapter, not just to the mind, but to the heart. Help us, Lord, to take these lessons that we have learned here. And I know there's many more that your Holy Spirit can teach. So I pray that he would, that he would teach us even more from this chapter. May we submit our hearts to him. May we submit our hearts to you. May you mold us more and more into the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for your amazing grace that covers our sin. Your grace that's willing to forgive us. Your grace that sent your son to die, to take away our sin. And to give us a right standing before you. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more, we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.